in my family, we've got the most incredibly immature habit of throwing each other into water wherever it may be found. So whatever the time of year it may be, spring, summer, autumn or winter, and whatever the type of water, sea, stream, river or pool, the rule is if there's water, someone has to go in, which is the reason we're all so slightly overweight to avoid ourselves being thrown in. <laughs> anyway, this came to a height a number of years ago when my older brother, who's 95% Christian and 5% animal, and you're never sure when the animal's going to emerge, pushed me into a river on January the 1st, New Year's Day. So we were in Surrey, we were standing, I was standing by a riverbank, his six and eight-year-old boys were either side of me, and the next thing I knew, I was falling in, and it was like, this cannot be happening. And then I hit the water, it was absolutely freezing, I went right in, I went right under, and because I'm a pastor and a Christian and a forgiving man, I went straight up the bank and took him in. Now just to say, just so you know, when it comes to throwing people into water, the key is to sacrifice yourself. So if you sacrifice yourself, you can take anyone in. So we went in together, and my car keys fell out of my pocket, and it wasn't a great start to the new year. Anyway, it didn't break the water habit, and six months later, I was doing a placement in Australia, and on a day off, I got taken to Botany Bay, and it was the most beautiful day. And the sun was bouncing off the water, it was crystal blue, it was calm as a mill pond, and I thought well, I've just got to go in. Actually, I thought of throwing the guy I was there and in, but he was a 70-year-old clergyman, so I thought, I can't do that. I thought about it. So I stripped off to my boxer shorts, which is a terrible sight, because I've now got a furniture problem. My chest is in my drawers nowadays. And I was just walking into the water when he said in his Aussie accent, what are you doing? I said, what do you think I'm doing? I'm going for a swim. He said, don't be ridiculous. I said, you don't be ridiculous trying to be as dignified as possible in a pair of Marks and Spencer's boxer shorts. I said, there's no one watching. I'm just going to nip in. He said, what about those signs? And I looked around, and there were two massive signs with sharks clamping together these jaws saying, danger, sharks, no swimming. So that was the problem. And, and, and I said to him, I said, listen, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll just nip in. He said, listen, mate. No, you listen. You've got to work out whether those signs are there to save you or to ruin your day. 200 Australians have been killed by sharks, and you've got to work out what those signs are doing. And with that, he walked off down the beach, and I rather pathetically put my clothes back on and followed him. <laughs> now, as we come to Thessalonians today, I wonder if you can see verse 10 that Onyeka read for us. Do you see the end of the last three words? It's a massive danger sign. The coming wrath. And the question is, as I show you that danger sign, particularly if you're investigating Christian faith, do you think that's there to save you or to ruin your day? And as we look at those words, can I tell you that God's wrath is not a volcanic anger? Or perhaps you've come from a family where someone flew off the handle in order to get control. And that was your experience of wrath. That's not what this is. This is God's settled, controlled, personal hostility to evil. And I want to persuade you that it's a brilliant thing. Because it means how I treat you, and how you treat me, and how we treat the world matters to God. It means how Sarah Everard is treated matters to God. It means how the 20 women in London who've been murdered since Sarah Everard was murdered matter to God. It means it all matters to God. In fact, the Bible says this about the judgment to come. It says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, I came from a loving home, but it wasn't a Christian home. 
and uh, we never read the Bible or, or prayed at my home. And it was a very big move for me to make in terms of understanding Christian faith when I understood that actually in the Bible, this is what it says, in the Bible, God's judgment is not set up in contrast to God's goodness. No, God's judgment is proof he's good. Because God is good, he judges. Um, I've got a twin sister. That's why I'm so sensitive to women. I was in the womb with a girl. So I have a twin sister, and I'm so proud of my twin sister. She spent 15 years in the townships around Cape Town and Port Elizabeth in South Africa working there. And she saw more death and suffering in a month than I'll see in my lifetime. I'm so proud of her. When she was working in the townships, a couple came to her and said, our daughter was raped and murdered. The boy that did it was out of prison after 18 months. We thought our little girl was worth more than that. Now, as you hear that, doesn't something rise up inside you? Well, it certainly does with God. He's not like a grandfather who says, sweep it under the carpet as the grandchildren muck around. He is passionately concerned about how people are treated. Passionately concerned. And therefore, I say again, part of the fact he's good is that he's judging what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Moscow, what's happening in Afghanistan. He will judge what's happening in Iran, what's happening here. He will judge. It's a good thing. Anyway, do come back to Christianity Explored next Monday, not tomorrow night, but the following Monday, and chat about that. We'd love to have your opinion on that and, and, and see what you think. But of course, it comes all the way down to us. It trickles all the way down because the bar, Jesus says at one point, what you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It is known. There is a record. And the proof of it is the risen Christ. Jesus rises from the dead, and that's not just to give us hope which is a joyous thing as a pastor to give at funerals. You give people hope. It's also a warning. We will be raised and judged. The coffin isn't an exitless box. Do you know, I was once um, speaking on this subject here at All Souls, and a man at the door came up to me, and he was shaking with anger. And he said to me, I hate people, I hate people who try and frighten me with regard to God. And of course, I knew exactly what to say to him six hours later. Are you like that? Six hours later, I thought, and I know that I, I, at the time, I couldn't think what to say. What I should have said to him was this. Sir, the issue is not have I frightened you, but is there anything to fear? And can I say, when it comes to my life, I'm not even thinking of yours. And I think of the gossip, and I think of the uh, selfishness, and I think of the godlessness, and I think of the pockets of jealousy and the pockets of lust and all these things I'm thoroughly ashamed of. Can I tell you, It makes me nervous knowing there's the coming wrath, and yet I approve of it. I know it needs to happen. Well, when Paul and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica, Jesus wonderfully, uh, they wonderfully didn't just speak of the coming wrath, they also spoke of, can we see our verse as we look down? Jesus who rescues us. Do we see verse 10? This is the second point. We've had wrath. Secondly, rescue Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So here's the issue. Ladies and gentlemen, when they went to Thessalonica, they didn't just speak about the death of Jesus as an ordinary thing, like an ordinary death. They kept saying it was special. If you're going to get anywhere with Christian faith, 
You've got to see that when it comes to the cross, ladies and gentlemen, we don't think it's an ordinary death. It's not just a Galilean carpenter dying. So Jesus said of his death, he said, I'm the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, the reason why my father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. On another occasion, he said, I've come to give my life as a ransom to many. Now, what does this mean? It means, ladies and gentlemen, every time you and I have said no to God, every time we've said, God, thanks for the gifts, fun, family, friends, falling in love, food, fitness, but we've said no to God, and for every time the punishment for that should fall on us, amazingly, when Jesus dies on the cross, the punishment for our wrongdoing falls on him. So it's as though... We're all on the Titanic. We're heading for the iceberg of God's judgment. And Jesus says, I'm the lifeboat. I will rescue you. And I don't know if you remember the words that Jesus said up on the cross. He cried out on the cross on that Good Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you hear those words, do you see them there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They are not words of physical agony, although he was in physical agony. Crucifixion was how the Roman world kept its slaves in order. There were 60 million slaves, and how do you keep them in order? You crucified them. So a fellow slave would think, well, whatever my lot, rebellion's not worth it. And we get the word, of course, excruciating from the Latin word crux, cross. So he was in physical agony, but those words aren't words of physical agony. Those words are words of relational agony. He's saying, God... Why have you thrown me out? Why have you rejected me? And now we get to the heart of what the cross means. Do you know, when I, um, when I was born in Chile, my dad was growing tobacco. That's how I got the name Rico. And then we moved to Africa, and dad grew tobacco in Uganda and Zaire. And as a little four-year-old in Africa, I had two hobbies, stamp collecting and butterflies. And for both of them, you needed one of these, a magnifying glass. But I soon found, as a little boy in Africa, that making little things bigger was not the only thing a magnifying glass could do. I found that if you took one of these into the midday sun, the possibilities were endless. I found that you could set alight a leaf or a piece of newspaper, or even the gardener's hut. And best of all, I found, if you held your twin sister down, you could scare the living daylights out of her with one of these. That was before I thought of ordination into the Anglican church. You see, you can take a magnifying glass and you can focus the rays of the sun into such a sharp point of intensity that it burns things. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder if you can imagine a magnifying glass the size of this room. And through it are passed, not the sun's rays, but God's righteous judgment, God's righteous, settled, controlled, just anger against the gossip, the hatred, the godlessness, the lust, the jealousy, in my heart, not alone, let alone not yours. And imagine that it comes down, 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 and focuses into such a sharp point intensity that it hits one man at one point in history so that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is how Jesus, can we see as we look down in the verse, verse 10, rescues us, from the coming wrath. That's how he does it. 
And I wonder, I wonder if you can remember what Jesus then said. I don't know if you've come across these words, but in Gethsemane, he cries out, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's the night before he dies. What's the cup? It's the cup of God's anger that he will drink for me. Do you know, many years ago, I was really struggling in Christian ministry and uh, I was very low, emotionally very low. And I went and saw that same Australian clergyman I'd been on the beach with and he was over in London. And I went and saw him. And I went through a list of all that was wrong. And as I talked, gradually his Aussie lip curled with disdain at this whinging pom. And then he said to me, as I went through all my woes, he said, Rico, mate, I had a friend like you, single clergyman like you and I. I was single at that stage. He said, he committed suicide. If I may say, you're not unlike him. I was like, what? (laughs) What? And he said, it's quite obvious, Rico, there's no Thanksgiving in your life. He said, morning and night, I want you to kneel by your bed and give thanks for what happened at the cross, and then we'll talk again. And you know, that one habit transformed my heart. So if you're Christian, can I ask, how thankful are you for what he's done to rescue you? Because that's the center of the emotional identity in our lives. This is what he's done to rescue us. And it's past, present, and future sin that gets forgiven. I mean, the security and love of it. I don't live for approval, but from it, from that. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I've got a diagnostic question for you, which gets you to the heart of what you think about the cross. Here's the question. If you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you reply? Gosh, it's a bit brutal, I know, but you know we're in these days of COVID and the rest of it. But let's just imagine that suddenly you find yourself rocketed into the judgment of God. You're standing before him and he asks you that question. Can I ask, what would you say? What would you say? I mean, would you say, look, I've been good enough. Do you know, lots of my dear family would say that. I've been good enough. I mean, I don't steal. Uh, I, I, I keep the Ten Commandments. I give to charity. I've not been a murderer or a rapist or a dentist or a traffic warden. I'm not one of those evil people. <laughs> Just to say, if you're a dentist here, welcome. If you're a traffic warden, you might want to see me afterwards. Um, <laughs> I, I don't lie. One person said to me, Rico, I'm a blood donor. I give blood. That's why I'll be accepted. Or you might say, look, actually, it's not just the moral stuff. Actually, it's more than that. It, 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 you know, it goes on. I recycle as well. You know, you know, so people recycle and they're almost fainting with self-righteousness as they do it. I think it's a good thing, but it doesn't get you into heaven. I think something they does. And then it, it might be, it's not so much the moral. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the spiritual. You say, well, look, Rico, I go to church. Sunday morning, we wake up. Everyone else is in bed. I get up and I go. At least someone on the street goes, I go to church, I don't just go to church, I'm a member of the Church of England. You know that, don't you? Why is it the Anglicans will be first in heaven? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's us, that's the Anglicans. <laughs> don't come near us, honestly. Uh, I've been baptised, I've been confirmed by a bishop. A bishop confirmed me, you know. Oh yes, that's why I'll be accepted. I pray, I, 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 I read the Bible. Um, or on it goes, you know, I go to communion. That's why I'll be accepted. I've had people literally say to me, I watch songs of praise. That's why I'm going to heaven. I mean, honestly, I watch it every week. I never miss. Can I say, how do you think you're going to be accepted? Is it through your performance 
or is it through Christ's performance? Because now we're right at the heart of what Christians believe. We are grateful people because we think he died. And this stuff here, this is all good stuff. I mean, it's all good. But can I say it'll do us no good at all when it comes to the judgment of God. Otherwise, why would God have sent his son to die? I mean, if your goodness is good enough, which is where so many of my family are, they just say, no, I'm a good person. They see moral and Christian as, as, you know, the same word. And that's why God will accept them. I'm saying, well, why did he send his son to die? Can I ask, what do you believe on that? I'd love to chat with you more on that subject. But let's draw to a close, because as we close, there was a Thessalonian response. Can we have a look down? Verses 9 and 10, as we look down. I'll go from 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message rang out to you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea. Your faith in God became known everywhere. Therefore, we need not say anything about it. For they themselves, these are the people around you, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how... You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. Can I just pick up three verbs there? They tell how you turn to God from idols. So up until then in Thessalonica, people focused their prayers on Mount Olympus. And so when it came to worship, they would look at the mountain and they would pray. And I guess some were bewildered by it. Some were sceptical. Some did it because their parents or their wife or their husband wanted them to. Some believed. Some were utterly confused. But when they heard about Jesus, and can we see uh, 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 the verse just as we look down, to wait for his son from heaven, verse 10, when they heard about Jesus and they heard about how he'd risen from the dead, they heard about with a dead girl, he said, Talitha, come, and she got up. They heard about how he flattened a storm. Why? Because he's God's son. He came into God's world with God's authority. When they heard about this, they, do you see, they turned to God from idols. So they turned away from idols. Now, what's an idol? A lot of you might be thinking, well, is that a shrine? It's a bit of an old-fashioned word. An idol is a made-up God. That's what an idol is. And you may think, well, I can't really relate to that. Let me go a bit further. When it comes to idols and understanding what we are living for, here's the question, what are you living for? Because that's when we begin to get to idols. If I say to you, what are your nightmares about? What are you most dread? If I say to you, what are you living for? What are your daydreams about? Now we're beginning to get to idols. Everyone worships, and we're beginning to talk about what we worship around. What's the most important thing in your life? And it, of course, it may, it'll be something God has given you. Maybe it's a, a relationship, a child. Some, I mean, you know, it might be your, your job, your status. It might be comfort. It might be lots of things. But here's the issue. For the Thessalonians and for Christians, if the most important thing in your life isn't Jesus, it's an idol. I am a, I, I, uh, I, I, as I looked at this and what my idol was, I discovered that my idol, was me. I was my idol. I worshipped myself. I thought I was the most important thing in the world. My twin sister wasn't certain of that, but I was certain. It all revolved around me. And I had to go, as I heard about Jesus, age 16, I had to go, Rico, you've been mistaken. Life doesn't revolve around you. 
He's died for you. He's risen again. And not only that, actually, just as we head back, let's have a look and see what he's going to do. You see, uh, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Not only has he died and risen again. This now, I don't know what you make of this, but Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. That the end of history will be his return. And we don't know when it will be, but the resurrection proves the coffin is in an exodus box. So he's coming back. And the Thessalonians were going to be ready for him because they said, when he comes back, we'll have asked his forgiveness. Whether he came back today or in 10 years' time, or they died and they stood before him and he said, why should I let you into heaven? Whenever it was, they were ready. And the word wait there isn't the wait from the dentist waiting room. You know, waiting in a dentist waiting room, you're just waiting. And then you lean forward, there's a magazine, and it's never published before four years ago. You know, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it just, it's, it, you, you just, you just, you just, you're just waiting, lolling about. No, no, this is waiting as on Christmas Day. So say people are coming on Christmas Day and you're getting ready to host them. You're running about preparing and serving so that when they come, you're ready. That was the waiting. And they said, we're ready for Jesus whenever he comes. What about you? Are you ready? Have you made sure that you've asked him to save you from the coming wrath? Or are you going, actually, no, 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 I think my performance, my performance will do it. Where do you stand on that? Well, can I just say, we love to, to have you come along to Christianity Explored next uh, Monday evening, not tomorrow, the following Monday. Please, there'll be loads of questions from this. Come with your questions. We'd love to see you. Uh, perhaps you can sign up there. Also, why not have a look at that knife crime evening, you know, next Saturday evening. You may go, well, what difference does Jesus make in real life in London with the problems we've got? Well, here's an example. Come and hear Stephen. As we look into the face of a massive problem, so many young men dying. Well, what difference does it mean to be Christian? Well, come and have a look at that. Investigate. We'd love your time. But for some here, you'll be going, do you know, Rico, I think this is true, but I haven't acted on it. And so as we close, here's a prayer. And it's a prayer that enables you to respond to what Jesus has done. Thank you so much for coming. We're so delighted. Let me just pray this. What I'll do is I'll read it through. And if it's right for you, why not, as we go through it a second time, echo it in your own heart? But let me go through it. Here it is. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you're God and have the right to control my life. I've rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word, and deed. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it so that I can be ready. Well, there'll be one or two I know who will be ready to pray that. Certainly this morning at the 9.30, there were one or two who, like Rachel 40 years ago, were ready to come to faith and did that. So if you would like to pray that now, why not echo it after me in the silence as I go through phrase by phrase? If you're not a Christian and still not sure, come back and chat. But this is the sort of thing that Rachel prayed that we pray as we look to follow Jesus. So good to know about it. So here it is. Do echo it phrase by phrase if it's right for you. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God and have the right to control my life. I've rebelled against you, sinning in thought, word and deed. I'm sorry for the way I've lived and ask you to forgive me. 
Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please come into my life and take complete control of it so that I can be ready. Amen.